Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Jonathan Curiel and I'll be your moderator for today's program called Afghanistan After 18 Years of War. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and and invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Afghanistan has been in the headlines forever, it seems, and is usually in the context of war, whether it's the U.S.-led military campaign that began in 2001 and is still ongoing, or numerous other wars that have roiled the country, including the Soviet invasion in 1979. Afghan civil wars or or other violent periods um, um, have, have been such a hallmark of the country. Today, we'll address one of them, the American-led one that is now 18 years old, and will provide important context understanding in Afghanistan. And I'd like to introduce our distinguished panel. On my far right, um, Dr. Sandra Miller-Ross, a fifth-generation San Franciscan who teamed up with her husband, Edward S. Ross, an entomologist and photographer at the California Academy of Sciences, on multiple scientific and cultural expeditions around the world. They were especially enthralled by Afghanistan. Dr. Ross will share images and thoughts from their book about um, Afghanistan. Um, it's about Afghanistan in the 1970s. Um, to uh, her left uh, is Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Alfidi. He's a private investor and an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army Reserve who has performed military duty in many countries, including Iraq and Afghanistan. He will present his personal views about Afghanistan and U.S.-Taliban relations. And to my immediate right is Atta um, Argandawal, who was born into an Afghan military family and moved to the West at a young age. He's a humanitarian, cultural advisor, and author of several books, including Lost Decency, The Untold Afghan Story, and The Self-Sufficient Global Citizen. Let's uh, talk to, let's begin our presentation with Dr. Ross, and she will do a PowerPoint presentation based on her book, Afghanistan at Peace. Dr. Ross. Thank you. These photos are a glimpse of people that we met in Afghanistan in 1970 during a rare peaceful period in their history. We were collecting insects for the California Academy of Sciences, where my husband was chairman of the entomology department for 40 years. When India docked on Eurasia, it created a series of mountains, seen here as the Hindu Kush. We began our road trip in the capital, Kabul, heading south and west toward Herat. As a vanguard of what was to come, we encountered this caravan at the edge of town. Men, women, children, and animals. And high atop the camels were their life's possession. Portable home, poles, rugs, ropes, cooking utensils, and youngest members of the family. To confirm our transport back in time, a wondrous sight appeared on the horizon, almost the color of surrounding earth, with towers rising skyward, a caravanserai. These ancient motels provided space for camels and other transport animals, small herds, and cauldrons of food for hungry travelers. Wealthy merchants had their own rooms, while herdsmen slept with their animals, all secure behind the sturdy walls of caravanserai. Tea shops were for men, so whenever I went in with my husband Ed to photograph, they gathered to see what was going on. 
I never felt threatened, just stared at with friendly curiosity. These men are repairing the underground Keraz system. We had seen throw-out piles from the air, like gophers make. The Karaz system brings water from the mountains using gravitational flow. These underground tunnels have been used for thousands of years and must be periodically cleaned out. One person climbs down and another turns the winch to haul up the very wet dirt. This is one of the more gentle scenes in a country of dramatic landscapes. Roses have been an important part of Afghan culture for millennia, probably coming from Persia. Many are Damascene roses, like these being sold by this child. Look at that wonderful hat. We came across this nomad woman in a red Central Asian print dress with little silver boxes hanging around her neck. Note the tattoos on her forehead and chin. Our driver said she was a coochie. Ed thought this red color was chosen so a woman could be seen from a distance and not shot by mistake as an unwelcome male. At an insect collecting stop, this friendly camel driver came over to see what we were doing, as there weren't many tourists around. He, like many we encountered, wanted his picture taken. Sultan Hamadi and his family have been making this Harati blue glass for generations. Their shop is in, is in Aladdin's cave, with everything from glass and metalwork to rugs, beads, embroidery, and clothing. We really fell in love with his bread, so organic, so basic to survival. At least half of the attraction are the marks made by the baker's hands. Each baker has his own pattern. The average Afghani survived on bread and tea, with meat as a condiment. Despite it being early May, we did not see many vegetables. Of course, at 3,000 feet, the growing season starts later. We had a very welcome experience in a tea shop, perhaps because the owner's daughter was there and obviously wanted to meet this foreign lady. She sat happily for pictures after checking me out touching my clothes, peering in my purse, and generally being delighted with her discoveries. Our driver told us the rug she sat on took a family one year to weave and was so fine it could be rolled up under an arm. Afghanistan is known for its carpets. We saw many different types of looms for making rugs and for different types of cloth. In medieval times and all throughout history, there were many small family enterprises. This type of family business continued through the Middle Ages. We had seen it persisting in traditional areas around the world, but never so widespread and vibrant 
as in the lanes of Afghanistan. At one road stop, we were enticed by the aroma of barbecued lamb, hoped that some of the aroma wasn't coming from his well-charred foot. (laughs) After Herat, we returned to Kabul and headed north. As the road climbed the 11,000-foot Salang Pass, the temperature got colder, and it seemed we would merge with the gray clouds. Rounding a corner, we came to this village that almost blended into the gray rock, separated by a rapid mountain stream from the Salang Pass Road. It had changed little from when it was photographed in 1905 by Edmund Burke, a British Victorian. Colm, the ancient Tashkurgan, was a transporting experience. It had the last covered bazaar in Afghanistan. Its earthen walls were permeated with ancient aromas, and we were immersed in sights, sounds, touch, and texture from an ancient time and place. Then, on to the 12th century Blue Mosque in Masari Sharif, one of the holiest sites in Islam, a place of pilgrimage for both the majority Sunni Muslims and the minority Shias. It honors Hazrat Ali, cousin and son-in-law of Prophet Muhammad. One of Ed's favorite pictures was his girl outside the mosque, not selling her roses, just enjoying being there with a couple of friends. This is legendary bulk. At the height of the Silk Road era, it was a giant trading center like modern Hong Kong. It was said the streets were paved with gold. Birthplace of Zoroaster and of Roxana, whom Alexander met and married there in, 20, in 320 B.C. Washed by millennia of rains, and whipped by the winds, these ramparts are still impressive. Bits of shard remind us of past cultures meeting and melding here. We found a new species of insect here, an ancient order in an ancient city. This highland valley of Bamiyan, framed by the Hindu Kush, was invaded by Genghis Khan and became a Buddhist center. These caves were used as chapels or meditation space for monks, first by Buddhists and then by other groups. On the road back to Kabul, we encountered this nomadic Pashtun family, clearly living with and off their sheep clothes from the beige ones, and milk from the long-haired ewes. This was usually made into curd, a mainstay of the nomad diet. This family lived in a walled dwelling, reached on one side down a ladder 
and open on the other side. In Syed Gorge, we followed behind this jock caravan, dwarfed by the canyon walls. It seems much further back in time that we immersed ourselves in this ancient civilization with people living in tents from 3,000 to 10,000 foot elevation, existing on their animals, which grazed freely on the land, and trading them for a few items they needed, like pots and pans. High in the mountains east of Bola Gorge, this happy Hazara reminds us of the warm welcome we felt everywhere. I hope you enjoyed this glimpse of Afghanistan at peace, and we'll have some books over there afterwards if you'd like one for yourself or your friends. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Dr. Ross. Um, that I think that sets the visual and um, other picture for for the rest of our panel here. We'll turn next to Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Alfidi to talk about. Um, he'll talk about his personal views about Afghanistan and then U.S. Taliban relations. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Dr. Ross, for your inspirational photographs. These uh, photos represent the peace and tranquility that Afghans deserve to have, but don't have as long as the Taliban are causing problems by fighting. Uh, I am currently a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserve, but I'm here in my private capacity as a private citizen. So I just want to emphasize that what I say today is my personal opinion and does not reflect in any way U.S. government official policy. Having said that, uh, the U.S.-Afghan peace process and the U.S.-Taliban peace negotiations that are supposed to be happening right now are a complex uh, phenomenon. Uh, The U.S. has been engaging with the Taliban directly for several years through our designated representative, Mr. Zameh Khalilzad, a former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, The Trump administration broke off the talks uh, this year, but uh, President Trump announced in recent weeks his willingness to renegotiate and re-engage with the Taliban. This announcement caught the Taliban by surprise. They didn't know he was willing to switch gears so uh, quickly and easily. And this ability to turn on a dime in many policy areas is a hallmark of the Trump administration, but it can be counterproductive in a negotiating stance. Uh, It doesn't consistently message what we expect from the Taliban and our Afghan government partners. And, oh, by the way, with our Afghan government partners, they have been excluded from our dialogue with the Taliban up to now. Hopefully they will be re-engaged with our, uh, our peace process as we go forward with the Taliban into the next phase of the negotiation whenever it happens. So why is this taking so long? Why is it so difficult to achieve peace in Afghanistan? The Taliban don't have a lot of strength. Their primary strength is their ideology, of Pashtun nationalism and Diobandi theology. That appeals to a lot of people. And their ability to control the heroin trade through Afghanistan that feeds the heroin supplies going to Central Asia and Europe is a source of financial strength for them. But they don't have a lot of military strength. They cannot outmatch or outgun the Afghan army. And the Afghan army and Afghan police do well in many areas of Afghanistan, even in hotly contested provinces like Helmand and Kandahar. The Taliban have been able only to temporarily occupy some district centers, but not take over the provinces as a whole. Why has it been so difficult for the U.S., after 18 years of war and stabilization effort, to come to this, uh, to where we are right now? I think part of the foundation of this problem is in the U.S. government's often contradictory and counterproductive approach through its stabilization programs that we've spent almost a trillion dollars on, depending on whose numbers you look at, since 2001. Just this week, the Washington Post released what it calls the Afghanistan Papers, 
Hopefully, some of you have had a chance to read this. Uh, the Washington Post sought through the uh, FOIA process, uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act, to force the government to release a lot of the background information that went into the official reports that were unclassified and released to the public through SIGAR. That's the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. You can go to the website SIGAR.mil and find many reports for many years of publication detailing money misspent and programs that went nowhere. The background reports that the WAPO, excuse me, Washington Post, released in the <laughs> Afghanistan papers uh, are illustrative because they reveal a lot of the background interviews uh, granted on the record by government officials, uh, General Jim Mattis, General Stanley McChrystal, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, and Carl Eikenberry. They all went on the record giving very detailed and oftentimes very negative views of the prospects for U.S. government programs that contradicted the public statements they were making about the Afghan government cleaning up its act and the Afghan military finally turning a corner. And all these other things that we've heard through the media uh, are now uh, contradicted by uh, these official reports that are declassified and released to the public. Um, I want to cite two examples within the Afghanistan papers that are illustrative of some of the problems we've had in our strategic approach. Number one, the Afghan local police. Afghan local police are, in my opinion, a good idea, funded at the national level by the government of Afghanistan to place locally responsive police forces at the village level that are accountable to village and tribal elders. It's a good idea. It grew out of the U.S. and NATO-led coalitions program called Village Stability Operations that was born in the Obama troop surge of 2009 to 2011. The problem with village stability operations, and we should have learned and relearned this lesson ever since Vietnam and our other U.S. interventions since World War II, is that to stabilize a village, if you're going to grow a local police force, you've got to have embedded advisors and trainers locally attached and responsive to that force. The most successful case study in Afghanistan was a U.S. Special Forces A-team led by Major Jim Gant, who pioneered the concept of the tribal engagement team. Uh, he was later removed from his position for drunkenness and alcoholism. But, uh, but the, the point is, it ended his career, but the point is he, he made a good case study for how a U.S. force can embed and win the trust of very xenophobic people in Afghanistan at the village level and build a core of security at the village level. Uh, as this morphed into village stability operations, the, uh, the Obama troop surge drew down in 2011, and there weren't enough advisors and embeds left to fully support this. So we turned over the funding to the Afghan government, and it metamorphosed into the Afghan local police. But because of uh, a lack of NATO-led uh, forces to embed with them, uh, the ALP program has now become misused in many ways. They've become hostage to the local politics of tribal elders, have become uh, armed thugs in some cases. And this is all detailed on the cigar, uh, cigar.mil website. So it's been a disappointment in some cases, although it could have easily been much more successful had we kept troop levels uh, committed to the level of seriousness that we demonstrated in 2011. The second problem I'll mention is our approach with Pakistan. This was mentioned in the Afghanistan papers, but it's obvious that Pakistan is a duplicitous and unreliable partner. They're not a friend of the U.S., they're not a friend of Afghanistan. Uh, the Pakistani ISI has taken a uh, policy of, I believe, a, a policy of, of malign neglect, to the Pashtun ethnic militants who would otherwise be a threat to stability inside Pakistan and allowed them to export their violence across the border into Afghanistan. Uh, it takes the pressure off Pakistan but increases the pressure inside Afghanistan. And because of things like this, you have to wonder why Pakistan is still considered by the U.S. to be uh, in the category of a non-NATO major ally. Giving it that status under U.S. law allows the Pakistani military to purchase advanced military equipment from the U.S., 
to seek funds for training its forces, to send its military officers to the U.S. for education in American uh, uh, DOD military schools. All of that needs to come to an end. I strongly believe, and I said this two years ago when I came back from my tour in Afghanistan. I was in Afghanistan uh, three years ago. I said uh, uh, publicly in this club that we need to take an approach with Pakistan that mirrors the approach we took with Iran with the JCPOA agreement to force Pakistan to cease and desist any support, material or otherwise, that it provides to the Taliban just by allowing them to exist and have safe havens in places like Quetta and Peshawar. The Taliban run their version of the war from their shura in Quetta and to a lesser extent from their other shura in Peshawar. They're tactically weak inside Afghanistan because their leaders are, by and large, not present within the territory of Afghanistan. So they should rightly be considered as foreigners who manipulate Afghanistan uh, from uh, an external source of support, of safe haven. Uh, I'll conclude my own remarks by saying that some of these lessons uh, revealed in the Afghanistan papers should have been learned by the U.S. military and relearned decades ago. But we seem to forget things. The single best lesson in uh, U.S. military counter, uh, whatever you want to call it, counterinsurgency, counter-guerrilla war, was in a novel called The Ugly American. Friends here read The Ugly American? came out about 1958 at the height of the Cold War. And every chapter in that fictional characterization of a U.S. diplomatic approach to a fictional Southeast Asian country could easily be applied to Iraq or Afghanistan. Every chapter is a vignette in counterintelligence, counterinsurgency, foreign direct investment, diplomacy, operational security. We haven't learned anything. We should have learned it uh, in Vietnam with the Cords program, which was very much like the village stability operations program that we tried in Afghanistan. Uh, and we are unable to, for whatever reason, budgetary or institutional memory or, or political inertia, whatever you want to call it, to institutionalize these lessons, lessons and repeat them to make them effective in facilitating a peace and stabilization process. That's all I have. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Uh, th- well, I'm, actually, I'm sure there's more where that came from. We'll, 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 t- we'll talk to you later True. about that. Um, okay. th- thank you for, for, for those thoughts. Uh, we're going to turn also now to uh, Atta Argandawal, um, and he's going to talk about uh, Afghanistan from a very personal perspective. Um, yes, let's, let's Oh Well, thank him. you very much. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right, a little bit of uh, allergies. My, old, my allergies are always like 24-7, but anyway, I hope I, uh, you can all hear me okay. And thank you very much. What a wonderful um, presentation. And Dr. Ross, thank you for just a really uh, a look at what Afghanistan was, but it can be again. And it's a, it was a spectacular country. Thank you for what you did and still uh, doing your part to really uh, bring the and show the world the best of Afghanistan. So we really appreciate it. And thank you for a wonderful uh, overview of what it can and could be. Um, Afghanistan, it, it's very easy to be cynical about Afghanistan. <laughs> Because there are millions of problems in Afghanistan. There are millions of questions. Um, but I'm going to really, again, uh, as an avid, uh, basically uh, student of, uh, I would say, history and geography from very early ages. And I've played very close attention while I was in high school in Afghanistan prior to Russian invasion. And I've spent a lot of time, actually, um, trying to see what the impact could be because as a student and as somebody that was always recruited inside my high school by communist elements. So I developed the real interest. I really just kind of had became very interested in terms of uh, understanding more about 
the geopolitics of my own country and and the region. So I've been watching everything from that time very close and having a prominent job uh, just prior to leaving Afghanistan uh, at a hotel intercontinental where I also served as a tour guide for some of the uh, tourists that used to come to Afghanistan and may have been actually in some of the spots that Dr. Ross had there just um, indicated. So I've been very engaged, very much follow. I've been f- following pretty much all the events from early days up to now and still monitor very, very closely. But I want to tell you that I've never been more excited and more optimistic than now because things are really, really turning for good in a very positive manner for Afghanistan. And that's the one thing that I was, uh, was, told, I was telling Jonathan earlier that, and other friends that it's something that we don't hear in the West. There's a lot of, it's all about the bad news and all about the bombing and all about the, the hideous things that happened. And of course, uh, it's, uh, what has happened to Afghanistan is tragic. It's probably, I don't know if any country on earth can take so much beating for 40 years and still survive. But uh, it's really, uh, and, and that's what I like to focus a little bit about the other side of it, which is the people side, the resilience of Afghan society which is absolutely remarkable. And again, and somebody who has, you know, as a young person living and following every single event up to now, but seeing the misery, seeing the bombing, seeing the killings, seeing the massacres of millions, and also seeing the migrations of many forced refugees to all over the world from Afghanistan, but also developing the uh, kind of a sense for what it can be uh, or what can happen to anybody around the world if we don't really care for each other. So uh, in turning to uh, become a humanitarian, so again, I, w- I watch everything from a really, uh, I would say, a curious perspective, very curious, but also from a people perspective, to really pay attention to what people say, not what the government say, what the media says. But, and that's the reason why uh, I'm, again, very optimistic, but very excited about the development and growth of the Afghan society in general. So let me just quickly refer first to the military and uh, police forces, which uh, in Afghanistan, I think one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest mistakes strategically made at the very beginning in 2001, 2002, was the fact that Karzai, and U.S. and NATO did not focus on building real Afghan army, which used to be the strength of Afghanistan. Afghanistan historically had a, one of the best equipped, armies in that region of Asia. It was very powerful. We had it all, from Air Force to all. And that's, that should have been a focus of the forces to not rely on militias at the very beginning and hand them a lot of cash, which happened. And that's the way uh, Afghanistan really, and the way that cash flew to Afghanistan, it all basically fell, fell in the wrong hands is because we never focused on building the real institution and army and police. As a matter of fact, for those of you that are not aware, the real push to build an Afghan army started towards 2007 and 2008. So in those first few years, there was a lot of damage that was done. And by basically empowering all these militia groups who have been fighting for all these years, and they became very powerful people that still are in Afghanistan and actually control of, pretty much kind of control the major, I would say, um, areas Geographically, but they also are very influential in the political environment in Af- inside Afghanistan. 
So we've empowered them with a lot of money, and these are very corrupt elements that were not educated. They were just pretty much fighters. They were just people that really did not really uh, have probably most of them, I would say, that have not been to um, finish high school or even been to school at all. So these people became very empowered. Very much they became who we today call the warlords in Afghanistan. Uh, but the good news is, again, is uh, so it wasn't just the cash flow in Afghanistan, the flow of cash in Afghanistan, but the resources that fell in the hands of Afghans. And that, again, started with from media to all of the actually and NGOs. And there were obviously a lot of NGOs that some of them did not do a good job. And, of course, people are not very happy with the outcome. But there were a lot of uh, good NGOs and a lot of good institutions from global institutions that went inside Afghanistan and did a lot. Uh, for Afghan societies, and mostly in education. So uh, as, uh, as you can imagine, there were, you know, 20 years ago, there was, you know, the people were not allowed to go to school. But what happened was after uh, U.S. Um, arrival in Afghanistan and NATO, the real focus shifted towards education, and people were very hungry by sending their kids to, to you know, schools, and the people started to build schools right within their own villages and all so now up to about 15 million students are now attending school in Afghanistan. That is absolutely phenomenal. So there's a lot of progress in that regard. But at the meantime, the media and the institutions that went on to create their private education systems, including universities all over Afghanistan, they played a really major role. So people were very hungry, but Afghan people are very talented. So as a result... Uh, They've really saw that they could. They have to take the matters into their own hands because they've seen the Russia, Russian invasion. They survived those ten years of war, but then here comes U.S. and NATO, and they're now seeing that again. They're seeing they're very intelligent. They're very smart people. They can see the transition of power is now suddenly falling back in the hands of warlords who do they don't like. They understand. So they kind of have, Afghan people have really lost faith in the outside. I would say forces were out um, basically in U.S. and um, NATO, unfortunately. And I saw that firsthand. I traveled to Afghanistan many times during the last 18 years. And so I visited and, uh, a lot of big cities and villages. But the outcome was, again, that, that people are very disappointed. They love American people. They love Western societies, but they don't like the, the Western government's approach to Afghanistan because ultimately, of course, it was the few that benefited from all the monies and resources and not the masses. So people took their matters in their own hands and they started to do their own thing by going to education, get themselves educated. Women have played an incredible role in Afghanistan's progress. Absolutely phenomenal. And that's what's really so exciting about Afghanistan and its future. And today, as you might know, as you might have heard, we have over 37% uh, women presence in Afghan parliament, which is more than any country in that part of Asia. That is absolutely exciting. And just this last week, they have actually uh, uh, were able to overcome and basically uh, stood up. And basically, uh, now that the, uh, I think the majority age is 18, that girls cannot get married until their age of 18 which is really unbelievable. And just imagine where this announcement was made and this resolution was passed in Parliament that quite a few of these warlords actually walked out of the buildings. <laughs> That's how significant it was. So, again, there has been an incredible movement in progress in the area of entrepreneur, business development, and these are all, again, uh, civil societies. Arts, incredible. 
and especially in the central uh, area of Afghanistan where the Hazaras, they are probably the most educated and the most robust members of Afghan society who really took on actually uh, the task of uh, equipping themselves with higher education and arts in music. And now they're making great progress. But at the meantime, west of Afghanistan, Herat is prominent. As you know, the robotic girls that are now displaying in Europe, they were not allowed to come to the United States. Apparently, their visas were denied. But they have just won the first place award in Europe today. And, and just imagine these girls coming from Afghanistan and building robots. So uh, also in the area of sports, incredible progress being made. There are a lot of major, now Afghanistan is suddenly a major player in an Asian uh, sporting environment. From UFC puff fighters to the man of Asia, to football, to women's soccer, just, it's happening. There's a lot of really progress in that area. But overall, I would say the media in particular has played an incredible positive role. Today, we have over 22 uh, TV and radio stations inside Afghanistan, robust, very vibrant. And you could see, basically go and actually watch halls in areas like such as this setting where people are openly talking about education, politics, without any fear. So things are really moving in the right direction. And um, this President Ghani, who a lot of people probably, especially the, uh, the opposition, do not give credit and wouldn't, of course, he has done a phenomenal job by actually removing some of the real bad elements from the government, such as the YVP and others, who are no longer players. But he, was, he had been tactfully able to move them away from the environment. Uh, and, I, and that's what has resulted in his prominence and his support by younger generation and women in particular. So they really like him, and we're really hoping for at least four or five more years of Ghani, where then the country can be really, really a prominent force to be reckoned with in this area. So I thought that would be a good, just give you an overview, and then, uh, of course, we'll be uh, happy to answer questions that you may have, as I'm sure there will be a lot of questions. Th th thank you, Ata Ardanwal. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I want, I want to remind our listening audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called Afghanistan after 18 years of war. Um, you've, you've painted a pretty uh, positive picture. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, even the title of this panel is about what's going to happen in the future. And one, one question from the audience is, is what, would, what would you consider the end game to be that would complete U.S. involvement? Um, various administrations have talked about um, withdrawing American troops and then the... Um, the kind of um, you know awful scenario would be okay. Taliban is back in the picture. The troops, yeah, kind of like if not a civil war, something akin to that. Um, so there's a huge worry about that. Can can you can you know anyone on the panel talk about that and what you see as the future of Afghanistan, even if it's the near future? Uh, something that Jonathan I just referred to, which was the strength of the Afghan army. Now um, I was there last year. It's incredible is how robust in the last three, four years of training, and the, especially the training of commandos I've done, 
They're really on the offense now. They're really, really very, very good. If they give uh, Afghan army at least a couple more years of support, which I'm very optimistic that even if U.S., let's say, decided to withdraw because we don't know what to expect from Mr. Trump. So you never know at a given moment. But I would say that there is a peace agreement that actually is in existence up to year 2025, which gives me a lot of hope that regardless of what Mr. Trump decides, there is an agreement that they have to hopefully abide by and have the American forces present there at least um, in, the act, you know, in, the, in the role of support, of course. At least a couple more years, and by then, Afghanistan, there will be really zero chance for Taliban to return to Afghanistan, based on what I just noticed last year. So it is happening, and the police is really, really, the Afghan police is now suddenly, um, in the last two years, they have done a great job of developing and paying attention and actually taking care of them properly in terms of proper pay, in benefits, and that has actually attracted a lot of youth over to those uh, forces. And that's very, very, and people are actually building a lot of respect. And they've also, Ms. Rani has focused on uh, eliminating corruption, which is really a big issue in Afghanistan. So with that, uh, I would say that it's really looking very good, but I would say an immediate withdrawal over all of the forces will certainly be a real problem that, uh, that again, the Taliban may not win the war, but they can create long-term challenges again for the society that has evolved. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Afidi, you want to? Um... Yes. I agree with Adam's assessment that the Afghan military has greatly improved its capacity. Uh, they seem to be, from my perspective, doing really well uh, in, uh, in the north, uh, especially. I, I think that the most likely scenario for, for the near term is some kind of negotiated settlement between the U.S., the Afghan government, and the Taliban that allows the Taliban to return to power in a shared agreement in some way. That would be not so good from the perspective of the Afghan people because the Afghan people in every poll that's ever been conducted by an NGO do not want the Taliban to return to power. But that seems to be a sticking point with the Taliban. They want at least a share in power that somehow abrogates partially the uh, Afghan constitution that we've worked so hard to to build with the Afghan people. So there's there's a a social contract there with the Afghan people that needs to be maintained. Yeah, if the Taliban want to be responsible and uh, put their moderate elements in the lead, and there are such things as moderate Taliban. Uh, you know, the Taliban are not necessarily monolithic from an ideological standpoint. Uh, if, they, if they want to behave themselves and be responsible and support uh, the continuance of women's rights and the progress that women have made in socioeconomic terms, then okay, maybe they could have a share of power in some way. But the final say on that has to be the Afghan government. The Afghan people want a democracy. They've accepted through four sets of national elections now uh, a democratic process as their norm. And I don't think there's any going back from that. Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, let me, let me ask you a follow-up question. You mentioned in your opening remarks, you talked about Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I lived in Pakistan briefly, and, and even this is 20 years ago or so, mm-hmm. uh, 30 years ago, and there was talk even then about Pakistan's control, quote-unquote, of Afghanistan. There are a lot of people who say that Pakistan essentially gave rise to the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one question from our audience is, how, did, how is it possible that Pakistan security did not know that bin Laden was hanging out in the, in the compound? Um, <laughs> But, but, but even in the context of that, can you talk about how Pakistan, yeah, it's, it's one thing for Afghan, Af- Afghans to want something. It's another thing for Pakistan to, to essentially sign off. Do they actually sign off, or is that kind of um, overblown in a way? Yeah, well, let me address the bin Laden situation first. Bin, uh, bin Laden practiced very good <clears throat> what we call operational security. All of his communications were air-gapped, so they couldn't be eavesdropped. 
so I don't think even the Pakistanis could have figured out, uh, even with a, a wiretap on his phone, where he was, that he was in uh, Abbottabad. And as far as a definitive command and control relationship with the Taliban, I don't think that exists. I, I personally believe that the Pakistan, uh, Pakistani government or military does not pull the trigger or issue orders on any Taliban operation in Afghanistan or elsewhere. They simply tolerate the, uh, the Taliban's safe havens in the ethnic Pashtun belt of, uh, of Pakistan because it's, it's like a safety valve for those ethnic Pashtuns who are unable to fully assimilate into Afghan, uh, into Pakistan society, excuse me. And I think one enabling factor of that is that the portion of the Pakistani army that's called the Frontier Corps that is supposed to patrol uh, those, uh, those corridors on the border of Afghanistan is the least competent and least professional element of the Pakistani military. So there's a, a huge sieve, uh, a semi-permeable membrane, whatever metaphor you want to use, that allows those fighters to flow, that allows drug money to flow, that allows weaponry to flow, uh, and the Pakistani government knows it's happening. Can't, probably can't, is not as competent militarily uh, to, to direct uh, the operation itself. But, but they, they, they know it's happening and they just turn a blind eye. Okay, yeah. Um, we, have, we have several people from the audience asking about the Taliban in relation to the heroin trade. The Washington Post papers, the reports that came out, talked about how, in a sense, the U.S. government was, were paying uh, Afghan farmers to, to get rid of their crops. Mm-hmm. But that, in a sense, that helped lead to more crops because they needed the money. They would grow again, more money. That's and so it was an example of this kind of confused um, and, to say, wrongheaded uh, idea that Americans brought to Afghanistan. Um, how, how connected is the Taliban to the heroin trade? Uh, and is the heroin trade still flourishing? Yes, it's flourishing, and the Taliban control it top to bottom. So, okay, yeah. Yes. All right, well, having said that, like, how, how, do, how, do, how does one, yeah. the U.S. government um, or whatever, how does you know, the Afghan government control, or is it really uncontrollable? It may be uncontrollable as long as the Afghan government is not strong enough to get a handle on its own corruption. Um, the, the model that was cited in the Afghanistan papers in the Washington Post was Plan Columbia. We succeeded with our counter-drug, counter-narcotics operations in Plan Columbia because the Colombian government was strong enough and responsive enough to our influence that they were willing to take the curtailment of cocaine production very seriously. That's not the case in Afghanistan. Afghan government officials uh, are willing to uh, take bribes from the Taliban, are willing to take a cut of opium profits. They, um, they're, they're not willing to fully engage in the fight. And because opium production is so integral to uh, the economies of especially Helmand and Kandahar, it's difficult to wipe it out unless you can give them a more profitable crop to raise. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent point. And basically, based on that, because of the growth of agriculture back in Afghanistan in small farming, it has been incredibly uh, positive to hear that people are shifting uh, in terms of their crops in the eastern part of Afghanistan and even in the west, southwest area. But the areas that are controlled by Taliban, you're right, these are the most difficult, but it can be done. And again, given the power or hopefully the growth of the Afghan army and police down the road, it is an area that can be controlled. But again, the biggest piece is the, the open borders, like you indicated, that have not been a major area of focus, or it could have been slowed down. But right now, the money is there. It's a lot of money in that area that controls it. Let me, let me turn to uh, Dr. Ross. Um, Dr. Ross, you're, you're, the photos from your book are really incredible. I mean, I don't know whether both you and your husband took them, uh, only you, your husband, you know, I don't know what that was. It's really, really incredible photos. 
they're so incredible that it almost makes one think, oh, this is the former Afghanistan. This is not the Afghanistan that exists today, in a sense. But is the, are these photos that, in a sense, reflect you know, a large sw- you know, swaths of, of Afghanistan? Or is, it, or is this really kind of a lost, a lost Afghanistan? No, and uh, Sandy Fish here, uh, who helped me with the book, uh, has a friend who is a um, reporter and uh, with uh, a number of big magazines. He's been there since, and he absolutely says it's still this way in the country. And um, I believe that Afghanistan has been the crossroads for so long that it's hybrid vigor there. These people are living, they're very strong, they're in their villages, and they're able to survive with practically nothing. I can remember old men with ropes walking the streets, offering their services to carry big, heavy packages. They're, They're strong people, but they're very friendly. They were very gentle. They all wanted to come and talk to us. And um, I believe that this is the real Afghanistan, and it's still alive in the country. I could ask that something that's uh, really helping, I referred to media earlier. I just wish I had some clips to show you. And the way that Afghan media and the TV stations in particular, or the cameras are focusing on Afghan costumes and the traditions, and as a matter of fact, it's becoming very competitive within the country, where everybody from their own regions, they want to display their products. And guess what's out there? TVs. And it's coming out, and now the, it's amazing how they are basically designing clothing, which is a mix of the old traditional Afghan clothing and the modern. It is incredible. So you're right, it's pretty much vibrant, and it's coming to life more than ever. Okay, well, you can answer this question then, because one audience member asks, do you think it would be safe to travel through Afghanistan now? I would say it's, uh, you know, (laughs) no, because it's really, it's becoming easier. I'll tell you why. Because I went to, and I I went, I traveled all over. Well, of course, it was easier for me, but they could still see that you're, the moment you walk in there, they know you're a foreigner. It's like, they were looking at me like, you know, how do you know? And I have, I'm an Afghan, I have all the features, but no, they will feel, they will feel it, they will smell it, they will tell you. Um, But the thing is, yeah, it used to be more and more dangerous, but I'll tell you right now, it's actually starting to open, where people internally can travel. They go from provinces to provinces, they go for picnics, they go to places, but at this point, it's still not really, I would say that it's not ready for foreign tourists yet. No. I, I concur. In the major cities like Kabul and Mazar Sharif, you're probably safe. Uh, on the uh, highways connecting Helmand and Kandahar province, certainly not. Uh, if you w- really want to start a tourist company, I hope you have a really good, strong relationship with uh, whatever local warlord will be protecting you <laughs> on your whitewater rafting trip or mountaineering climbing trip through a through the mountains, because uh, they'll be protecting you with AK-47s while you're on tour in, in the country. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just on that note, I mean, uh, Dr. Ross, your book uh, um, has photos from the 1970s. That was a time, you note, you note this in your book, there it was a hippie trail where a lot of people would go not just to Afghanistan, they'd go to Iran, they'd go to India, they would travel across Asia that way in vans. Um, you traveled through Afghanistan, I believe, in vans. Um, actually... Uh, we had left our uh, truck in Africa, our, our entomological truck, so that we actually rented a car with a driver there. They wouldn't let us rent a car alone. Um, interestingly, 
we didn't see any of the hippies or anything. We didn't see anybody on the road. There, you would see one vehicle a day or something like that. And and I know that when Sandy Cook was there, it was much more populated. She taught there, and um, but it it was very quiet when we were there, and very beautiful. Oh, yes. My husband's grandchild was born in Afghanistan because his daughter had been one of the hippies <laughs> that went out in a van. And uh, they were actually making clothes. I'm sorry Sandy didn't wear the dress today. But that's clothes you were talking about. But they were making them 50 years ago. But unfortunately, with the coup, they had to leave. Right. Uh, I, I, I note that uh, one of the photos was from a Bamiyan, um, yes. and those were the famous Buddha statues that the Taliban obliterated with dynamite and other, other things. Yes. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, you were in Afghanistan in the 1970s. Have you been back since? And if you haven't, what, what, is, your, what is your personal um, feeling when you were reading about Afghanistan in the news, both the good and the bad? I try not to read the information because I find it very disturbing. Um, and I remember my husband was distraught for days when they were going to uh, blow up the, the Buddha. He could not understand why they would do it. Um, so I just prefer to think of it as beautiful when I'm there because I know it's still that way in the country. And Ada keeps really telling me, we were at a wonderful meeting here about a month ago, about the hope that's going on in Afghanistan, really. I, I think it's coming back on its own. Um, Ada, can, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit more? About, about you, you talk about, in general terms, about um, the progress of women, uh, pro progress of girls. Um, but, it, but it really is hard for um, you know, not just Americans, but others who follow Afghanistan and see you know, the bombings, the roadside bombings and so forth, and in a sense to give up, give up on Afghanistan. Sort of, you can call it um, you know, a kind of fatigue, a compassion fatigue maybe. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, also thinking about women who have actually, you know, in, in general, you know, um, you know, being responsible for big families, you know, averaging average five to ten kids. I mean, just imagine. For all these years of war and all the years of in devastation, and yet this woman have come, you know, have risen. And that is really amazing. Uh, and again, shows the tenacity of the Afghan woman. Uh, it really speaks to the, speaks volume. And, and in terms of how they embraced really the arrival of U.S. forces and being away and uh, coming, um, becoming free of the Taliban reign. So that was really welcome news. And that's an opportunity that I know the woman in Afghanistan really capitalized on. As soon as uh, that uh, the Americans in NATO walked in Saint Afghanistan, uh, and really, I think more than anybody that embraced uh, that uh, and welcomed them was Afghan women in particular, even in the villages and, and all over the place. And they never gave up. They became, they, they stayed engaged. They, they got themselves educated. They realized that this is the way that they want their children to, to grow. So they encourage their children to grow and to go to school. And they, uh, a ton of them I'm aware of have actually um, homeschooled them in Afghanistan with the availability of internet and so on, they became, I, I was very, very surprised in the village of Argande, which is uh, where my parents, uh, basically, and ancestors were born and raised, where that's where I saw that people were actually home, uh, basically schooling their children, and they had internet access. 
They couldn't even go outside. They've never been outside of the village, but they were yet educating and preparing. So women have played an incredible role. But also part of it is the, uh, the international organizations and NGOs that went in there. Uh, they really did a great job in carrying and uh, conducting workshops all over the country. And they did an amazing job. So they basically all of that must have really played a very big role in terms of where we are. But with the arrival of Mr. Ghani and, his, you know, of course, with his focus on the women's role, and Mr. Ghani's wife, you know, the, it's amazing as to how, what kind of an impact it has had on the society. Unlike Karzai, who actually, whose wife was a, is a doctor, uh, she was an educated woman, but he never allowed her to come out in the public. So he did again. He would, uh, I mean, that magician did a like, kind of, he, he really hurt Afghanistan in every way possible. That, that he could, including, you know, um, isolating his wife inside that palace. But at any rate, so the progress is being made and continuing to make, and people are benefiting. And a big part of it is internet and availability to resources. That's really made the Afghan women where we are, where they are. And they speak out their minds. They are not hesitant anymore. I'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned Hamid Karzai because uh, he uh, headed Afghan Afghanistan right after the U.S. invasion. He was seen as almost an Obama-like figure with his robes and his stature, and people thought he would be a kind of messiah in a sense, and he turned out to be, well, a lot of things. I know the Washington Post report talked about how, how corrupt he was. Um, can, can I have both of you talk about... Um, uh, about a kind of what if, as it were. What, what, if, what if Hamid Karzai doesn't ascend to power, and does that have changed totally, or really does it become Afghanistan per usual? I'll start. What if? Well, his main credibility came from his ethnic connections as a member of the Popozai tribe, which had a lot of history with the Durrani Empire the, uh, and the uh, uh, historical ruling class of Afghanistan. If he had not been uh, an asset to the U.S. government that was so uh, valuable to us early on, uh, we would have had to find somebody else who was acceptable to the Popozais, the Gilzais, everybody else who has participated in the ruling elite of Afghanistan over the centuries. So we would have had to find a, a Hamid Karzai light, someone who is uh, just as amenable to uh, accepting U.S. Uh, presence in the country, but perhaps not as corrupt. I think, I don't know, again, he is, uh, Hamid, Hamid Karzai's, uh, you know, emergence and control has really hurt Afghanistan in every possible way for a long time. But he really managed due to, obviously, the reasons that um, Antony had mentioned that is very significant. And he's still a player inside Afghanistan. He's really a major corrupt player inside Afghanistan. But uh, basically, he was, he's the one mainly responsible for really growth of corruption inside that country. Because mm -hmm. that's what he did with his brothers and his cronies and groups that he assembled. Uh, he was not a leader. He was not somebody who, was to, who had any plans to really build infrastructure or think of Afghanistan's future. He was all about himself and his, yeah. Uh, for the record, there are a few moans in the audience. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's how it should be. We're, 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 we're coming, um, we have a couple minutes left. Um, you, each of you have, has talked eloquently about Afghanistan, but I wanna give you each a chance to say um, kind of last thoughts as it were. Um, you know, you, you, let's say you're, you're um, talking to President Trump. Let's say you're talking to Afghan leaders. Uh, some, some wincing here, I want to say, for the record. Um, but what, what, what do you say to them? I mean, so, so often in the society we have people who take, you know, um, glimpses of things rather than the depths of things. But if you can give a glimpse of your, of your hope for Afghanistan, what, what do you say to people who will listen to you who actually have the power to change Afghanistan? 
Well, thank you. I will again say that, you know, thank you for all of the amazing sacrifices and, 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 and billions of dollars and all of that. And, and, and um, just to not give up too quickly. We, Afghanistan needs a few more years, at least a couple or three, four more years of real support um, uh, on the military side. Uh, otherwise, Afghan society is ready basically to build on what they have already built on and to move on. Uh, but I think the international support in the ro- and especially U.S.'s role is going to be incredibly important. So as long as Afghan people can support and they do not want to be abandoned as they were after Russian invasion. I concur. If I were on the National Security Council, I would advise uh, President Trump to stay the course in Afghanistan, uh, increasingly tilt toward our brand new ally, India, because a strong U.S.-India relationship is Pakistan's worst nightmare. Uh, Bring the hammer down on Pakistan, as he promised in 2017 when he announced uh, additional airstrikes and a harder line on Pakistan. Uh, and uh, to keep Iran in a box, either with the JCPOA as a revived agreement or something stronger, to uh, send a message to, our, our, uh, to their neighbors in Central Asia that uh, we're committed to the peace in the region. Well, if I look at these amazing faces and all the difference that shows the, the people that have been through Afghanistan that have lived there, if they have been able to stay together for so long, I really believe that they can still pull it together again. Yeah. Um, I'm going to sneak in one final question, actually, Dr. Ross. Um, you have so many beautiful photos of Afghans you met, um, parts of the countryside. Were you able to keep in touch with anyone you, you uh, photographed, or is there a way to, um, you know, that you stayed in touch? No, we didn't, and partially it was because the coup happened um, very shortly thereafter, and even... We were afraid for many years to publish these pictures, including there's uh, pictures of of, um, of a doctor's wedding, a, a, an Afghan doctor that was trained abroad and came back. And we were afraid that something might happen to them if we published these pictures so that it's been so long. Uh, but we feel now that either they're no longer there or, you know, that things have changed. But um, I have a great hope. Yeah, that's maybe that's a, a nice place to leave on. Um, we want to thank all our panelists here, Dr. Sandra Miller-Ross, Atta Argandawal, and Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Alfidi. Um, we also want to thank our audiences and those listening to the this recording on the Internet. I'm Jonathan Curiel, your moderator for today's program, which was called Afghanistan After 18 Years of War. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 115 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.